0: Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
1: Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here ends the reading of the word.
0: Well, good morning. It is good to be together. And I uh, just listening to Dick read that passage, and I thought, boy, this is a hard passage. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we're going to pray for the Lord's help with this. Do be praying for the young men, and John prayed for them before, who are up at uh, our denomination's um, middle school retreat, Winter Blast, it's called. They're up at Hidden Acres. Pastor Andrew is up there with <clears throat> one of our <clears throat> excuse me, longtime volunteers. Devin Breddy is up there. With uh, last count I saw was four. Is it four? Awesome. Four. Four young men who, uh, who are up there, and uh, it's always a great retreat. So pray for them as they're finishing up this morning, coming back for the next few days, too. And uh, yeah, let's ask for the Lord's help with this passage. Lord, we thank you so much for how you are working in and through us. Uh, thank you <clears throat> for the, cr- the crew up at uh, Hidden Acres this weekend and uh, just love that retreat and, and uh, the commitment of, of those who, who went up with those young men. We pray that you will bless them and uh, use the investment they've made of, of time and of a weekend, both the students and the, and the uh, leaders, of a, of a whole weekend just to give in over to their relationship with the Lord and with each other, and uh, we just ask you to bless them and uh, draw them closer to Jesus as a result of this. And uh, <clears throat> Lord, we would ask the same for ourselves as we look at this passage this morning. We pray that you will help us to understand, give us uh, alert minds and clarity. Help me, Lord, to be as clear as I'm capable of being, and then some by the help of your Holy Spirit, so that we can understand uh, this really important uh, teaching in here this morning about, about our Savior Jesus and what he's done for us. And so uh, we look to you now, we pray for your help, and we pray for uh, your Holy Spirit to apply this to our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> what does the future hold for the human race? What does the future hold? What's in store for humanity? Uh, if popular entertainment has anything to say, the answer appears to be not much. Uh, have you noticed this? Have you noticed uh, there's, there's so much bleakness out there? If you, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit of a sci-fi person. I'm, I, I won't say junkie, I'm, but uh, I, I, I enjoy science fiction, and so when I do watch something or when I at least pay attention to what's available, I, I tend to pay attention to that sort of stuff. And, and if you look at the, the sci-fi stuff that, that's available, it's all so bleak. Global pandemics, climate catastrophe, zombie apocalypses, on and on it goes. I'm not sure what it says about us these days, but some of the most popular shows that you hear about have a very bleak vision for where the human race is headed. This is one of the many places where we as Christians have a distinct advantage Uh, We don't need Apple TV or Netflix to tell us the future. Uh, According to Hebrews chapter 2, the future of humanity is good. It's beautiful, in fact, and the reason it's beautiful is Jesus. It's beautiful because of Jesus. That's what our, our text teaches this morning. It teaches us that Jesus actually fulfills what we were made for. It's this key piece of what Jesus does. He fulfills what human beings are made for. Our destiny isn't to become zombies or to populate the galaxy or anything crazy like that. Our destiny is fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, we are continuing in our, our study through the book of Hebrews, and we're early in the, in the study. We're only in the chapter 2 here. And, uh, and, the, and this early part of the book focuses on the supremacy of Jesus. And so if you've been here the last few weeks, you, you know that. We've talked about that. Uh, the author begins by laying out the supremacy of Jesus, and he does it in, in di- several different ways. There's several different ways Jesus is supreme, if he's going to be supreme over everything. And so the author is going to show us some of the different ways Jesus is supreme. And where he starts is angels. He actually starts with the cosmic powers. And, and so we actually talked about that a couple weeks ago, chapter one, uh, once you get done with the introduction, the main point of chapter one is that Jesus is greater than the angelic powers and therefore he's greater than any and all cosmic powers that might exist. Uh, and so that's chapter one. Chapter two actually is going to continue this argument. The author's not done yet with, with this focus on the angels, but he does change his, the angle of his argument. And so chapter one says Jesus is greater than the angels because of his deity And so chapter 1 focuses on his relationship to the Father. Jesus is God, and therefore Jesus is greater than the angels, because God made the angels. We're still talking about angels now, but now the the focus moves to the humanity of Jesus. And that's really what we're looking at. We had that that warning section last week that we looked at, but now the author comes back to his argument about angels, and for the rest of chapter 2, he's going to argue that Jesus is greater than the angels, not just because he's God, but also because he's human. His humanity makes him greater than the angels too. And so uh, we're going to actually, that's what we're talking about this week and next week. I want to take two weeks to look at this part and it'll get us to the rest of chapter two. And uh, next week, we'll look at verses 10 through 18, and as I look at this section, uh, next week's passage is the more obviously practical part, because there's a whole bunch of benefits in verses 10 through 18, benefits that accrue to us, benefits that we enjoy because of the humanity of Jesus. But first, we need to lay the foundation, and that's what today's passage does. And so we're going to focus on just this specific way in which Jesus fulfills our purpose. So so you have human beings. God made us for a purpose. That's what the author's going to argue here. We're going to see how we utterly failed at that purpose. And so Jesus, in the incarnation and in his obedience and in everything he did for us, Jesus fulfills that purpose for us. That's really what we're talking about today. So uh, we're going to do this in three parts. I'm just going to follow the author's outline here. We're going to talk first about uh, a, a limit that angels have. So we're gonna talk about those. We'll start with the limit of angels. Then we'll talk about the dignity of human beings. And then we'll talk about, it'll all culminate with the humanity of Jesus Christ. So we have the limit of angels, dignity of humans, humanity of Christ. Let's get into it. So we'll start with the angels. And specifically, we've already said quite a bit about angels already in this book, but now there's something uh, else that we're told in verse five. And it's that the angels are limited. There is a limit set on the angels. And, and, uh, And that also makes Jesus greater than them because Jesus is not limited in this way that the angels are. So, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So the angels, the angelic forces, as powerful as they are, are limited. And the limit comes... What's the limit? The limit is that they have authority now but they will not have authority in the future. That's what verse 5 says. They've got authority now, that's assumed, but they will not have authority in the future. And to understand this, to understand the context, the assumption the author makes in verse 5, we've got to talk about angels for a a few minutes here. And the the thing to know about angels, as we think about them biblically, is that they do have authority. They, They actually have significant authority, both the good ones and the bad ones. Angels have authority. That is the the assumption of verse 5. If you're going to say they don't have authority in the world to come, which we'll get to in a minute, the assumption of that is that they do have authority now. The present world is subject to angels. This is seen in scripture. Now, you might scratch your head at first and say, really? Do they? But yes, they do. Uh, think, for example, the book of Job, one of the earliest written books in the Bible. The book of Job, uh, we're not going to turn to Job, but many people have, most of us, if we've read any part of Job, we've read the first two chapters because that's the part that's, that's narrative and it's the easiest to read. So hopefully this is familiar or you could write it down and go read it later. But, but Job opens up with this scene in the heavenly court. And we read in the first few verses that Satan comes from the earth into heaven, and he just strolls in. He just comes into the heavenly court, and we're told that he was going to and fro upon the earth, walking up and down upon it. Sounds a little bit like an inspection. It sounds like a guy checking out the the things that he's in charge of. And then as the story unfolds, it sure sounds that way. Because there's this exchange. There's an exchange between Satan and God. and, And basically what you have is Satan asks for permission to test this righteous man named Job. I want to test Job, he says. And God lets him. God allows Satan to test Job. So we learn a couple of really basic facts about angels from from the opening chapters of Job. We learn that Satan has authority on this earth. He has authority. He's able to, to do things that affect the life of this human being. Satan has some authority there, but his authority is a derived authority, right? It comes from God. So his authority doesn't stand alone on its own. He does have to get permission. He can't do anything to Job without permission of God. So Satan is under God's authority, but he has authority, right? And so there's this, this in the present world, and, and angels are not um, all-powerful, they're not sovereign, only God is sovereign, only God is all-powerful, but they do have authority. Both And, and in this case, it's, it's bad angels we're talking about in the example of Job. Uh, You'll see this principle in Daniel. The book of Daniel is another one where it's relatively easy to show. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, there's two different prophecies. And and, and the narrative that presents the prophecies, uh, we read about these princes, princes of different nations. And at first you think, okay, are these human rulers? And then you keep reading and you realize, no, these aren't human rulers. These are angelic powers. Right? So the prince over Persia, the prince over God's people, we're told about those two specifically. And so again, you have uh, angels with authority that they're exercising in the, in the spiritual realm that affects the physical realm, both good ones and bad ones. Angels have uh, a measure of authority, you see in the book of Daniel. And then we even see this principle at work in the New Testament, Right? You see this working in, and, and you'll, you'll see it in the power encounters between Jesus and demons where he always comes out, but those demons are, are influencing things. Uh, but maybe the clearest place where you see the power and the authority they have is actually in the temptation of Jesus. You actually see it there. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, for, for instance, Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. It, it's the, in Matthew, it's the third temptation that's presented to Jesus. We read that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, the devil, said to him, Jesus, all these kingdoms I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Do you remember how Jesus responds? He doesn't say, you can't do that, right? He doesn't say, oh no, you can't do that, Satan. He doesn't like laugh in his face and say, you know, you can't do that. No, instead, Jesus simply reminds Satan that worship belongs to God, not to you. But he doesn't dispute the claim that Satan makes. And In fact, if Satan didn't have some measure of authority over the nations of the earth, it wouldn't have been a temptation. Right? It wouldn't be a temptation at all if he didn't have some ability to, to, you know, to, 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 to do what he said he was going to do. And so even the temptation of Jesus, even that New Testament passage, shows us that in the present world, angels, good and bad, have some uh, influence or authority. But here's the key to our text. All that's background information to understand what what verse 5 is saying because verse 5 says that's, that's just a temporary thing. That state of affairs is not going to last forever. The angels will not have authority, and what does he say, in the world to come. It is not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So the present world is subjected to them in measure, all under God's sovereignty, but in the world to come, they'll have no place at all. What is the world to come? What's he talking about? Well, I think the answer is the, the best way to understand that is to understand it as the kingdom of God. And so we're actually already living in it partly. Partly which is why demons are more limited now than they were under the pre-Christ era, before Jesus uh, died and rose from the dead. Uh, they're, they're actually limited now in a way that they weren't then. And so Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom of God, he, you know, his kingdom, that's the world to come. He starts it, he inaugurates it, and then it takes a big leap forward when he rises from the dead, and then it'll be brought to its fullness, its final completion when Jesus returns. And so the world to come, its all the, you reach all the way out, it's when Jesus comes back. Then, then, then the angels will be done. And that's actually the point that verse 5 makes. It kind of a, takes a little while to explain it, but uh, the, the angels won't have a part in that. And if you read in, book of, in the book of Revelation, the evil ones are cast into the, throne, into the lake of fire. Nothing left of them, nothing, nothing more for them to do. Uh, we actually, at least as near as I can tell, we don't know what happens to the good ones. Uh, I'm I'm sure they continue on, but uh, it's uh, not sure what they'll do in forever, Uh, but they won't govern. The angels will not govern God's creation. They will not have that authority anymore. It's not to angels, verse 5 says. It's not to angels that the world to come is subjected. It's not subjected to angels. So, Verse 5, we, we start with just a little bit of a review, really. If you think, well, could, what, how does any of this matter to me? Why does this matter in my life today? Well, it's, this, it's actually very much what we talked about in chapter 1. Uh, if if angels are that much inferior to Jesus, if Jesus is greater than them, don't, don't spend too much time focusing on angels. I, really, I think that is one of the messages we're supposed to take away from Hebrews chapter 1. If there's any um, remnant of... Uh, of a, pa- <clears throat> excuse me, a paganism in us that wants to put any created creature up alongside of Jesus, uh, Hebrews 1 and 2 says, don't you dare. Why would you give veneration? Why would you pray to, to, to an angel or to a saint or to anything like that? Why would you do that when you can go straight to the one who's the greatest? Don't settle for a lesser. Go for the greatest. Go for Jesus. Give him your attention. So that's the takeaway from this first part, and it sets up. So, so the angels won't be ruling forever and ever and governing, uh, but who will? That's, that's the next part we need to talk about. Brings us to the second part, because and now we're going to surprise you a little bit, because the second part of what I want to talk about has to do with the fact that humans are greater than angels too. So Jesus is greater than angels. We've established that back when we talked about his deity. But here's the thing. When Jesus became a human, he wasn't given anything up as far as his greatness, greatness to humans goes. Or excuse me, greaterness great, than, than angels. So, so let me show you what I mean. Uh, and to do that, we need to talk about the dignity of humans. right? So we're going to talk about the dignity of, of human beings now. And that's this quote in, in your Bible. So if you go ahead and look at uh, Hebrews 2, Before I read verses 6, 7, and 8 again, uh, let me just tell you where this comes from. So let me situate this in context. Uh, The author is going to say it's testified somewhere. It's not because he's forgotten where, it's just he knows his readers will recognize it. It's one of the the Psalms. It's actually one of the earliest Psalms. It's Psalm 8. uh, Psalm 8, so it's early on in the Psalter. Psalm 8 is written by David, it was written by King David. And it focuses, it's really, it's a praise song. If you look at Psalm 8, and you're welcome to do so, Psalm 8 is, uh, it's got nine verses, so it's relatively short. And it is a praise song focused on God. It is a praise song about the majesty of God. And so this is the one, we actually have a, it's a little older now, but there's a chorus that's based on Psalm 8. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name uh, in all the earth. That's Psalm 8. It begins with those words and it ends with the same way. O Lord, our our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so Psalm 8 is a praise song. But in the middle of that praise song, there is a meditation on the dignity of human beings. The dignity of human beings. That's the part Hebrews quotes. Hebrews isn't going to focus on the praise part. It's going to focus on the dignity of human beings. So now let me read it to you. This is, uh, so it's very much lines up with Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read from Hebrews. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So we'll stop there. One of the trickiest parts of interpreting uh, this part of Hebrews, the part in front of us this morning, is figuring out who the author is referring to and when he is referring to to that person, Um, starting with the quote, right? So I just told you that the psalm in its original context, Psalm 8, he's talking about human beings in that middle part, and it's very clear he's talking about human beings in that middle part. Uh, you know, David is, is reflecting on humanity and he's just blown away that God cares about us. That, that's what's going on in Psalm 8. But the question, the hard part for interpretation for us is whether the author of Hebrews is following David if he's also talking about human beings or does he switch it and talk about, start talking about Jesus or is he somehow talking about both? All right. so when we read this, Uh, what is man that you're mindful of him the son of man now wait a minute we recognize that from the gospels but it's also a term for humans so son of man is he talking about jesus or is he still just talking about the human race Uh, that you care for him you made him what he which him are we talking about humans still are we talking about jesus you made him a little lower than the angels Uh, and then we're going to have the same issue as we get into the rest of verse eight when we get out of the quote and we read the rest of the verse eight in a minute, it's going to be the same issue. Who are we talking about? So uh, I spent some time with this this week. I'll tell you what I think. I'm sure I could find you some commentaries that would disagree with me. But uh, as I read this, I think that the author of Hebrews is talking primarily about human beings. He is focusing still. He's following David. He's using the text the way the text is originally intended to talk about the dignity of human beings. So, 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 It's focused on humans. What what are humans? What is mankind that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man? Mankind that you care for him. You made mankind humankind for a little while lower than the angels. He's talking about people. But as we're going to see. It's talking about people fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who fulfills what this says about human beings. That's where the author's going with his point. So. In its original context, like I say, in its original context, it's a praise song. David is praising God. You made the heavens, you made the stars. And then David turns and he looks around. Maybe he probably even looks in the mirror and he says, What are you doing, Karen, about us? That's that's what is man? What are we? Look at that. What are we? That you are mindful of us, he says. What is man? But it's not just that God's mindful. It's not, that he, it's not just that he pays attention to us like some cute little pet. No, not only do you, you care about us, but you've bestowed upon us, the psalm says, an extraordinary dignity. You made us, for a little while, lower than the angels and you could, it's a little bit of a translation issue there, because it, it could also be rendered as you've made him a, a little lower than the angels. The sense of it's going to come the same either way, because the idea is that for a, a short time, we're just below the angels, but it's only for a short time. And so if it's only for a short time that they we're lower than the angels, follow the logic, there will come a time when we're higher than the angels. So we're lower than the angels now. They can come and go. We can't. We're, we're bound by time. They have authority over kingdoms. We're lucky if we can get the house clean. I, it, it's, it's, there, there's a sense in which we're lower than them now, but that is not the permanent state of affairs. For a little while, we are lower than the angels. And that fits very well. That with, with, uh, so, so you've crowned us with this extraordinary dignity, which is how it continues. You have crowned him... I don't think we're talking about Jesus yet. Not only Jesus. You've crowned humankind, men and women alike, with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under mankind's feet. That's Psalm 8 and it's Hebrews, it's Hebrews 6. It's both. Excuse me, Hebrews 2. <clears throat> I want to give you two words. Two words to, to think about when you think about the future of humanity, so I go back to where I started, You know, are we destined to be um, fungus-filled zombies like there's you know, some new show that's out now where that's kind of the basic p- premise. I don't know if, if the, all of us or the last of us, something like that. Is that our destiny? <laughs> are we headed for something like that? No, two words, exaltation and dominion. Exaltation and dominion. According to Psalm 8, according to Hebrews 2, that's what we're made for. That's the destiny of human beings, exaltation and dominion. This goes all the way back to Genesis. It's all the way back. This is what we were made for. I, I, David's inspired by the Holy Spirit when he writes Psalm 8, but he may well have been meditating on what was already in Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps and so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them exaltation and dominion they're both there the exaltation part comes in the fact that we bear the image of God we and we alone I'm convinced it's why Satan rebelled, although I don't know the timing. But he, he, he was so jealous that God would put that upon us. We're the ones who have that and nothing else. Human beings are crowned with glory and honor from the very beginning. There's no better crown than the, glory, the glorious image of God. And that's what he gives upon us. Uh, the dominion part comes in, we call it the creation mandate. comes straight from those two verses. Uh, from the very beginning. <laughs> human beings man and woman together were given dominion over the creation not to abuse it or ravage it or any of that but to cultivate it care for it work it shape it even improve it that's the creative piece we're even appointed here to improve upon it right so you build a bridge or a road or something like that that's part of the creation mandate too both of those are right here in in hebrews they're both right here verse 7 and 8 crowned with glory and honor is, is the exaltation part. Everything in subjection is the dominion part. And that bestows upon human beings. So let's do a little anthropology here. That bestows upon human beings an immense dignity. Even in our sinful fallen state, even in our sin, human beings have a, a God-given dignity. Uh, well, uh, I, I said before in my introduction that um, the, most of the really practical s- part of this section uh, comes in next week's passage. We'll talk about a, you know, how Jesus can sympathize with us on our weakness. All that kind of stuff comes in next week's passage, but we already get some of the practical stuff here. Uh, this, for example, is why human beings are so important. We we really are. We're, we're not just another animal. I mean, you know, yeah, we got blood and they got blood. I mean, it, it, yes, it's all part of God's creation and things are similar, whatever, but we are, we are the fancy word is ontological. We are ontologically different. We are image bearers. We are stewards. Your dog, your cat, the cow, none of them have that. We are different from them and and more important, more important than them in God's universe. And therefore, this is why we have to, you know, there's so much that flows out of this. We have to care for the weak, we, we absolutely must, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's costly, all that kind of stuff. Uh, the unborn, the elderly, dis- the disabled, the sick, the poor, the oppressed, every human being, because of this doctrine, every human being has inherent value because every human being is created in the image of God. Uh, And that's why we uh, Christians have to uh, reject and not just reject, but lead the way in rejecting uh, things like racism and and sexism and classism. Uh, Yeah, I know those things get twisted a little bit and abused with political agendas, but fundamentally, those are rejecting those things is is Christian. Those human beings are, are created in God's image. This is why we reject pornography, for example or or prostitution or any of that any any of those sex related sins uh, sex related sins debase people they debase people who are made in God's image right it turns human beings who bear his image it turns them into consumable objects that, that's what's wrong with that stuff it's it's not kind of some kill the fun sort of a mentality no uh, this is why Christians reject uh, the culture of violence I mean, this, is a, this is a hard one because it so dominates our world But we need to guard ourselves We need to guard, uh, for example, what we look at for entertainment right? if, if we watch a show where 100 people get killed in 48 minutes uh, What is that saying about how we think about human beings? Right? What, what is that saying? Even if they're just fictional human beings right? what, what, is it, what are we allowing to seep into our own souls In terms of how we, we look at our fellow people? funny. It feels like a very theoretical doctrine when you start talking about the dignity of humans. But but when you press on it just a little bit, all sorts of practical things come out. It really is this this important thing. And so that's what we were made for. God uh, created us for a great purpose. He created us uh, for exaltation and for dominion. And understanding that, we, we need all of that to understand the third part. Because first, we have to know what God made us for Now we can appreciate what God did for us in Christ. And so now we get to talk about the humanity of Jesus. That brings us to the humanity of Christ. And the key to this third third part is is here's what the author wants us to see. He wants us to see that Jesus fulfills what we were made for. He fulfills it. We were failing quite miserably, left to our own devices, right? All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've been failing at it all along. And so Jesus came and did it for us. God the Son came and did, did what we were utterly incapable of doing for ourselves. And this is why his humanity is so important. And again, we'll, we'll explore more why his humanity is important in next week's passage. But, but it starts here. Because Jesus is fully human, he is able to fulfill what humans are made for. He can do, he can can accomplish that purpose for us and then assign what his his success to us is really how it works. He can do that because he's human. If he wasn't human, he couldn't do what humans are supposed to do. The quote from Psalm 8, so let's let's go back to the text. Uh, The the quote ends in the first line of verse 8. Your Bible will probably break it out this way. So verses uh, 6 through the first part of 8 should probably have it lined up like poetry because it's a quote. Then the author explains his quote. So he wants us, he's going to give us context for understanding what he's saying about the quote. So, picking up in the middle of verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, and again, we're going to have to decide who he's talking about. Who's the him? Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he, God, left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So, First part of verse 8, or the first part of what I just read, so it's the middle of verse 8 technically, everything means everything, right? So the quote said, verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Next thing the author says is, by the way, everything means everything, right? Now, in putting everything in subjection to mankind, God left nothing outside his control, So here I've made an interpretive decision. Some would say, and if you've got the ESV study Bible, I know some of you like that one, there's a note at the bottom that'll tell you that there is a debate at this point. There's a debate at this point. Some would say it switches at this point to Jesus. So now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside of Jesus' control. That is possible. I'm persuaded that the author is actually explaining the psalm. And he's still talking about mankind. So now in putting everything in subjection to mankind, God left nothing outside his control. So that's God's intent. Back in Genesis 1, when God created men and women, his intent was that men and women would rule over in a a benign, under his sovereignty way, uh, reflecting his image, all of that, under his lordship. But we would would rule, to to use that word. Uh, Everything would be in subjection to humankind. That was God's intent. But then, last part of verse eight, the author acknowledges what you and I know to be true, right? So he makes a nod to reality, and he says, "But at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him." And I think he means mankind there. It, like I say, it, you could apply it to Jesus and we could, we could, we could run the text, we could process it that way. But I think he's acknowledging what we all see. He's acknowledging the fall. Right? So God's intent was that we would have dominion over the creation in this wonderful, beautiful way, living in harmony with God's creation and with each other and reflecting his image, and that was his intent. But Genesis 3 happened. Sin happened. And so we, who were created for glory and honor, instead we, we, we muck about in shame and disgrace and rejection and rebellion. We were created for dominion, instead we have weakness and war and and death and disease and disaster and destruction and all the rest of it. Uh, We were created for exaltation and dominion, but if you look around you, it seems like anything but is is, is what's happening. You sure wouldn't look around and and, and conclude that we were created for exaltation and dominion. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. Enter Jesus of Nazareth. Enter the ultimate human, the one who perfectly fulfills what humans were made for. See, this is where we're going now with this next, this next line. We couldn't do it for ourselves, so Jesus came and did it for us. Picking up in verse 9. I'll actually read the rest of her, from the middle of verse 8 just to catch the flow. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to mankind, but we see him And now we switch to Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, he tells us explicitly, it's namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So at present, we do not see everything in subjection to human beings, but we see Jesus. We see him. And, and the Jesus we see, look at how he describes Jesus here, the connections he makes. The Jesus we see is human. So he, he left, he's leaving behind the, the deity stuff that we talked about in chapter 1. Now his description, is, is, it's the same description used in Psalm 8 to talk about human beings. We see him, verse 9, for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So, chapter one, Jesus is fully God, but chapter two, Jesus is fully human. It's the same language used to describe Him that's used to describe to describe us. Again, it's not the only place in Scripture you can you need to you need to backfill from other passages to get the whole doctrine of the incarnation. But that's what you have there. You have the doctrine of, of the incarnation, fully God, fully human. Uh, we talked about the dignity of humans in in the second point. Uh, this. Uh, a, This is the ultimate affirmation of that, right? How do we know God values human beings? Well, he became one. He didn't need to. He sure didn't need to, but he he chose to affirm his own image stamped upon us by becoming one of us. And that was just the beginning That was just the beginning of what he did, because not only did he become one of us, he also died for us. The author has to go there. You can't talk about the one without the other if you're going to talk about what Jesus did for us. And so he moves from from incarnation to crucifixion. He moves from cradle to cross in in one verse. And so if you keep reading in verse 9, Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of. The suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so that's what he did for us. Verse 7 says that God's intention is to crown humanity with glory and honor. So what did God make make us for? He made us for glory and honor way back in Genesis 1. He's going to put everything in subjection under our feet. But then we blew it. We blew up the whole thing with our sin. Fallen, rebellious creatures can't be crowned with glory and honor. We have the the image of God still, but it's marred. It's damaged because of our sin. And so Jesus came, and God said, I'm going to do it in him. I'm going to do it in him. And so Jesus came. He fulfilled uh, what, what God's intent was for us. And you see it happen in verse 9. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Right? There's the fulfillment. There's, there's the exaltation. And we actually already talked about the dominion back in chapter 1. Remember, Jesus is king over everything. So we've, we've got Jesus. Here we are kind of, we're not even done with chapter 2 yet. And we see him fully achieving what human beings were created for all the way back at the beginning. We are created for exaltation. Well, he's exalted. He, fully human, is, is exalted. And he's given Full dominion. So Jesus fulfills them both, and here's the best part for us. At, you know, at least here's the best part. At least in terms of how it affects believers, the best part is that He now shares all of that with us, and it's it's the doctrine of union with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are. If, if you are born again, you are in Him. You become He is. He is in us, and we are in Him. We abide in Him, and He abides in us. Uh, he sh- and so he shares what is given to him and what he has achieved, he, he gives to his people. And so he shares it with us. Not in the sense, you've got to be careful with this doctrine, it's not saying that we have the same status as Jesus, it's not saying that we're equal to Jesus, that's certainly not the teaching of Scripture, but he shares his exaltation and his dominion by making us his people. And so our core identity... Our core identity. We all have lots of identities. We're husbands and fathers and mothers and, and daughters and sisters, and we have different jobs, and we have you know, all these different identities. But our core identity, the thing that most makes us who we are, is that is now defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what defines us. And so all these things that are for Jesus... Uh, you know, there, there might be some exceptions we could talk about, but so many of the things that Jesus has achieved and that are given to him are now shared with his people. And so you get a verse like Revelation 321. I mean, the book of Revelation, right? And Jesus is talking. It's one of the letters to the churches. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Dominion, right? He's given dominion. And he says, come on up here, my children. And I have no idea what that'll look like, right? You know, the Bible teaches in the millennial kingdom, believers will reign. That's, an, that's, that's the uh, overflow of this doctrine, right? It's dominion, that, that what we were made for will, will happen. Uh, you get a passage like Second 2 Timothy 2.11. Uh, Paul writes, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will live with him, right? There's your, I am crucified with Christ and therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. Uh, if we died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Paul says, and so if Jesus is exalted, we are exalted, not in and of ourselves, but in him. If Jesus has dominion, then we have dominion. Again, not in and of ourselves, but because of him, because we're in him. And so Jesus does it. Jesus does it. He fulfills what we're made for. We couldn't do it. So he did it for us. And here's the part we have to always remember. (laughs) We have to always remember that it all comes back to the cross. Without the cross, none of what we've talked about, especially the last third of it, uh, none of it works. None of it works without the cross. Uh, verse 9 says that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So so he's, he, he um, in the incarnation, he takes on the Humanity and has that original dignity. But I think verse 9 takes us beyond that to his achievement of it. And so he's crowned with glory and honor. What did Jesus do to fulfill what we were intended for? He died. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We're going to piggyback off of that for next week's passage, but we'll stop here. That's why this is possible. He died in our place. He he took our place. He took our penalty. He took our sin, paid its just penalty, and rendered it 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 done, right? It's done. It's paid. And then exchange in exchange, what does he give his people? He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. And And the author mentions that grace there in verse nine. It's by his grace, and so we have forgiveness. We have freedom, we have eternal life, we have hope and joy and peace and the mercy of a clear conscience, right? We, we are free from, from those past sins and someday in the world to come, even this, even the exaltation and dominion, all because of the cross, all because of the cross of Jesus Christ.